Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may our worship continue now. May our praise of you continue as we witness what goes on in heaven and what will go on to celebrate some very, very significant events. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do something um, very unusual. You may be part of the only church that's ever done something exactly like this. We've been studying Matthew in the mornings, Revelation in the evening. I have a deadline. First week in September, I'm not going to be able to finish either one. However, I decided we are going to try to finish one, but it'll be the book of Revelation rather than Matthew. Matthew's a great book, but there's no way we're going to be able to finish that. So we're going to do something very, very unusual. We're going to start a mini-series in the mornings on what takes place basically after the tribulation. In other words, it will be the millennium, it'll be the eternal state, it'll be heaven, it'll be something that is very, very positive, very upbeat, very uplifting, and it will exalt the Lord Jesus Christ just as Matthew does, just as all the books in Scripture do. So we're going to have that mini-series as we jump ahead in Revelation. We're actually on Sunday evenings um, at about Revelation chapter 12, we finish that, and we're going to continue in the evening from Revelation 13 through 18, and then we're going to pick up here in the mornings where we leave off in the evenings, but we're not going to be getting there at exactly the same time. Everybody understand what I just said? (laughs) Okay, so um, (laughs) you're shaking your head. Yes, some of you to be nice, but I think it's going to be something that's very, very valuable for us. So we are in Revelation chapter 19 this morning, and the title of the message is Worth Shouting About. There's going to be a lot of shouting that goes on in Revelation chapter 19. And I'd like for us to read that, and then we'll have some of the context that will help us to jump in to chapter 19 with some preparation. Revelation 19, verse 1. The Apostle John, of course, is writing this, and he says, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For His judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute. Let me just mention this, the great prostitute. When we study and we come back to here, you'll find out it is one world religion that has been persecuting and creating martyrs of the Christian faith during the tribulation period. It is working in league, although it's an uneasy alliance with the Antichrist and the one world government. There's a one world religion. But that one world religion is referred to as the great prostitute. And that has been judged, it says here, the one who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. It tells us back in chapter 17 that this great prostitute was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And now we're going to see the result of what happens when judgment has just been proclaimed on this great prostitute. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. 
Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Isn't that exciting? Get to be a part of that? Those of you who are inhibited have never shouted out hallelujah like we're going to one day. Um, Actually, today. In a few moments, we're all going to have that opportunity. We are studying the revelation of Jesus Christ. The ESV, if you have an ESV Bible, it's going to call the, the book at the very beginning, it's going to call it the Revelation to John. Don't pay any mind to the ESV. Proper title of the book is announced in the book itself. The Apostle John tells us in the first five words that it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Those are the words that are translated, the first five words in the ESV itself, in the NIV, in the NASB, in the KJV, in the HCSB, and the Amplified, probably the KJB and all the other things that you can, KGB and all the other things you can think of. Please, as we study this, do not refer to the book as Revelations. It's not Revelations, it's Revelation. It's singular, and it's not primarily a book about the end times or eschatology or prophecy. There's a lot of that in there. It is a book revealing Jesus Christ. I was reading earlier this morning, not related to the message, but in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 3, it says, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. We're going to see the Lord Jesus revealed. We're going to see a look at Him like we've never seen before in the book of Revelation. And the name of the Lord proclaimed. Listen to this. These are the names of Jesus in the book of Revelation. Please don't try to copy this down. You'll be very frustrated if you do. He describes, John does, the Holy Spirit in the book of Revelation describes the Lord Jesus by many titles, including these. The faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the living one, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword, the Son of God, the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, the one who is holy, who is true, the holder of the key of David who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the Lamb of God, the Lord holy and true, the one who is called faithful and true, the Word of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords, Christ, that is Messiah, the anointed one, the one ruling on earth with his glorified saints, and Jesus, the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. I'm going to give you a very easy test. What is the title of this book? One, two, three. 
the revelation of Jesus Christ. I gave you all kinds of help. It's even written on the screen. The revelation of Jesus Christ by his name alone we see the Lord Jesus revealed, and there's so much more. If you'll open or turn back, if you will, in Revelation to chapter 1, verse 19, it's a key verse. Revelation 1, 19, I believe that that verse is one of the most important verses in the book to help us to understand what is going on. Here's what is said. Right therefore, and the Apostle John is told to do this, right therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, that may not seem like earth-shaking, but it is because it gives us a divine outline of the book of Revelation. It gives us a divine outline, first of all, the things that you have seen. The Apostle John had already seen a vision of the Lord Jesus in chapter 1. Oftentimes, we refer to that as the Patmos portrait of Christ because he was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he was given that particular vision. Verses 9 through 20 describe it. The things that you have seen, then those that are, and that's encompassing chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. The NIV calls it what is now. Refers to those two chapters, chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the existing seven churches that many commentators believe encompass the whole church age, the whole time between when Christ left and when he's coming back again. And then the third part of the outline Those that are to take place after this, a reference to the future, to the events described in Revelation 4 through 22. Now, if you look at chapter 4, verse 1, you see a distinct division in the book. The letters to the seven churches are are finished. Those were the things that are. Now, in chapter 4, verse 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And the after this continues, chapters 4 through 22, and we believe that this is a picture of the church being raptured, being taken up to be with the Lord Jesus right there at the beginning of chapter 4. So we have everything in view here, the outline of the book in three parts, and chapters 4 through 22 were things that were going to take place after the Apostle John's time and after our time here on earth, after we've been raptured. If you take a look, those of you that are able to see the screen, you can see that there's a further outline. We've got a seven-year tribulation period that begins being described roughly with chapter 6, but verses, or excuse me, chapters 4 and 5 take us beyond here on the earth. This arrow here indicates the rapture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can see the believers being taken up to meet the Lord Jesus in the air, described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. What you want to do to be in on this is to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, to accept him as your Lord and Savior. Then beginning really with chapter 6 in Revelation, the seal judgments, later on the trumpet judgments, there are seven of each, seven is a prominent number in Revelation, Then beginning in Revelation chapter 16, seven bold judgments. The seventh judgment always has something that emanates from it. So emanating from the seventh seal judgment comes the trumpets. From the seventh trumpet judgment comes the bold judgments. 
Then at the end, we have the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. There'll be a thousand-year millennial period. The eternal state follows that. Those who are left on the earth during the tribulation do not want to accept the mark of the beast. It's symbolically said that it is 666. Tribulation period is divided into two parts, three and a half years. The beginning, there's a midpoint. Uh, then the three and a half years is, is often called the Great Tribulation. So this is called a survival map. That is because if you're on this side of the tribulation, you need to receive the Lord Jesus as your Savior. If you're on this side, do not accept the mark of the beast because it's not too late to receive the Lord Jesus for those who are here. So a little bit of preparation before we get to chapter 19. You can see some of the things that are very significant that are here. When we look at chapters 4 through 18, we've come almost all the way through the tribulation period. And again, that's that seven-year period that describes terrible judgments on those left on the earth. And as you see on the screen, the seven seal judgments and trumpet judgments and bowl judgments, when we get to Revelation 19, it is almost all over the bad parts. Almost all over. But here in chapter 19 is some immediate celebrating that we're about to look in on. That's why I call this worth shouting about. Chapters 17 and 18 have just described the fall of two aspects of what is referred to as Babylon the Great. The religious aspect and the commercial aspect. Babylon the Great is an ecclesiastical empire, a world church that works in league with the Antichrist and the one world government. Now, part of that has been destroyed. This uneasy alliance between one world religion and the Antichrist and one world government is shattered, it's broken. And the ecclesiastical and the commercial part of this whole thing is now destroyed. The beast or Antichrist is still around in chapter 19. You'll see something about him in verse 19. So are his kings and their armies. None of them will be around for long, but they survive the religious and the commercial demise of the empire that's been working in league with them. Now, all of that, if you stay with us on Sunday nights, we will describe in great detail, the scriptures will, as we go through that. But what it talks about in chapter 17 and 18 is a sudden destruction that fell on Babylon, the city, the center of the ecclesiastical government, and the center of the commerce at that particular time. There was a sudden destruction that fell on Babylon. Now, I've, I've preached about the book of Revelation before. The last time I did was about 16 years ago. And I kept this comment that I wrote at the time. And I said this, as we were describing this sudden destruction on Babylon, how could a whole city, how could it all disappear so quickly? And here's what I said, and if you think about what happened 16 years ago, you do your math and you go back to this, here's what I said. After the events in our country last week, and uh, that would have been September 2001 if you didn't do your math, after the events in our country last week, it adds a realness or a believability to the picture before us. Not a part, but a whole city is destroyed in an hour. Look at chapter 18, verse 8. 
This is the description of the destruction of Babylon. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Look at verse 10. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Look at verse 17. Now we're talking not about the one world religion that has been destroyed, but now the commerce that went up with the city. Verse 17. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And it talks about the commerce of the time when all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. Um, You look again in verse 18. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Sixteen years ago I said, Commerce comes to a stop. The merchants and shippers of the world are paralyzed. Fire and smoke fill the air. People mourn from afar. Imagine what will happen when the capital city of Antichrist's worldwide domain, a large city, is destroyed in the same way. Much more believable, isn't it, having lived through something very close to that on a much smaller scale, but at least we can see how something like that could happen. At that time, the earth will be in mourning, but there is a far different picture in heaven. There's no mourning going on in heaven at the collapse of Babylon the Great. Chapter 18, verse 20, hinted at that. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. That's just a little bit of a tip of the iceberg. Some of the most exciting events we can ever imagine are described following that hint in chapter 18. And we come to the first five verses of chapter 19. Celebration of the doom of Babylon the Great. Now, if you don't like a lot of noise, put your fingers in your ears, um, and uh, you'll, you'll be a lot more comfortable. There's got a lot of shouting going on in these five verses. It will not be deathly silent in heaven. Some people have this caricature of heaven that all we're going to do is sit there and strum quietly on harps for the rest of eternity. Um, It will not be deathly silent in heaven. Four verbs describe the acoustical environment, the first five verses here in chapter 19. First of all, in verse 1, it uses the expression crying out. Something's going to be crying out. Who's crying out in verse 1? Well, some group that sounds like the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven is going to be crying out. So the NIV calls what it sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. I don't think that we can approach the loudness of that sound. Picture this, though. Picture those of you that love sporting events Picture World Cup. You know how crazy fans around the world get about soccer? Uh, Picture a team that has just won the World Cup and picture a particular stadium when that World Cup has just been won. Think about the roar that engulfs that stadium, that shakes the stadium to its core, that makes it so that you almost feel like you're losing your hearing. This is the description that is here. 
It's the same expression that is used in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10, when the martyrs are celebrating in heaven, those from all over the world, every nation, every country, every, every kindred, every tribe, every tongue. They're making a lot of noise back then, the tribulation martyrs. They could be the ones who are making this noise here right now. Or it could be angels, as some of the commentators will say. What are they shouting? They're shouting the word hallelujah. Want to join them? On the count of three? I'm not going to say it, because I want to hear you. Ready? One, two, three. Hey, that was great. That was, that was fantastic. You may get another chance later. If you ever hear me say count of three, you'll know what to do. What are they shouting hallelujah? It's a word that transliterates the Greek, which transliterates the Hebrew. It means praise the Lord, and hallelujah is a word for every language. Do you realize that? You know a word in at least every language in the world, at least one word, and it's hallelujah, and it's translated praise the Lord. Do you know it's only used four times in the New Testament? All four of those times are in the first six verses of this chapter. You look at the part of verse 2, the second half, or excuse me, uh, the second half of verse 1. Here's what they're calling hallelujah about. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just, for He has judged the great prostitute the one-world religion, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That's another reason why we think that these may be the martyrs, again, who have gone to heaven. And they're celebrating this one who drank the blood of the martyrs. Uh, What a great picture that is. I wonder, is there anything in your life that you think is not fair? Remember, in heaven we're going to be shouting his judgments are true and just. Everything is fair about God. Verse 3, another action verb, cried out once again. Who's crying out? It says the same multitude as in verse 1. Again, they're crying out. What are they shouting? One, two, three. (laughs) I love the echo too. That's great. (laughs) Okay, that's what they're shouting again. Second verse, same as the first. Again, it refers to the ruin of Babylon the Great, but it carries the action far beyond the smoke of that city because it says the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Have you ever burnt something on the stove before guests arrived? Any of you do that? Come on, anybody do that? You burnt something? Okay. I'm going to tell a story on my wife. It's complimentary. She did one time. We used to have the uh, new members over for breakfast after our last class. She was cooking them a breakfast, and we had some people came to the door who wanted some food, and they wanted some gasoline. And I went to help them with the gasoline. She went to help them with the food. She was making breakfast. At the same time, she's making breakfast for a large group of new members who were joining. And all of a sudden, we realized that this family that was there looking for gasoline and food were not really looking for gasoline and food. They were looking for money. And when we were making the effort to to do something for them, they went back to their car, drove away, and I had come back from making arrangements for them to get gas. Beth was in the middle of their breakfast. We walked out the door and looked out, and there they were driving off. They didn't want the... It was a nice breakfast, I think. Um, But then all of a sudden, we both realized... There's smoke coming out the back door. (laughs) 
and that new members were coming and the smoke was going to be there. Um, that's what the case of Babylon, the smoldering ruins of her destruction will smoke forever and ever. There will always be a reminder of what had gone on. It indicates the judgment is final, it's permanent, it's irreversible. You look at Revelation chapter 14 for just a moment. Revelation 14 verses 10 and 11 just remind us how ugly some of these scenes are going to be. Some people don't take them literally. Some people say that they're, they're not meant to be taken literally. They're only figurative. Literative or figure, figurative? Literal or figurative? You don't want this. Verse 10, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, those worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of the beast. It will not be a pleasant time. Another action verb in verse 4 helps us to see the acoustical environment of this scene in heaven. It's the word saying here in verse 4. It's a word that can mean that they merely said something, but in context here, the word cried is supplied in some of the other translations. If you look at verse 4, now it's a different group. It's 24 elders and four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. I don't think that they're just saying, Amen, Hallelujah. I don't think they're just saying that in that context. This is, again, in this context, can be translated cried out once again. So we have a third time we've got some action that's going on. Who cried out or said something here? The 24 elders and the four living creatures. If you were with us earlier in our study, I think that we conclusively prove that the 24 elders represent the church. And the four creatures were cherubim, a high-ranking order of angels, always seen worshiping God. Interesting, though, these 24 elders showed up early in Revelation, but we haven't seen them since the tribulation began. We believe that these 24 elders represent the church. The church is not pictured on earth during the tribulation. The church is only seen in heaven. And so that's another reason why we believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, that we're not going to see all of this. We're going to be at in heaven with the Lord Jesus. What are they crying out? They're crying out. It says, Amen. We had a man in our church at Colwyn as we were growing up. His name was Jim Radford. We called him Amen Jim Radford. Amen Jim Radford will be there, and he'll be amening. I'm absolutely convinced that he will. And what else are they saying? I heard that. <laughs> you remembered. <laughs> he remembers Amen Jim Radford. Well, they didn't just say amen. They said something else, too. One, two, three. Hallelujah. <laughs> amen, hallelujah. Thank you. Paying attention. They also fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. Fourth action verb in verse 5. Saying again, same word as we just saw in verse 4, same context, meaning that they aren't just saying, they're crying out, although the word could be translated either way. Who is saying? It's a voice from the throne. Probably not God or the Lamb. You would expect that when it says the throne, but reference is made to our God in verse 5, so it's probably going to be an angel. What does the voice say? According to verse 5, praise our God, that's translation, basically, of hallelujah. All you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. 
That phrase, small and great, transcends all human categories and distinctions to embrace everyone. All the redeemed are called to praise God, just as we were singing about earlier. We shift gears now when we come to verse 6. Now it's still noisy. Now it is still a celebration. But now it is not celebrating the demise of the great prostitute, the great Babylon. Now it is the celebration of the wedding supper of the Lamb. So there's more shouting we can see in verse 6. Who's shouting now? It says it sounded like a great multitude, not necessarily the same multitude as in verses 1 and verse 3. It could be the wedding guests who are mentioned in verse 9 or referred to there. The noise does not abate. It was like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder. What were they shouting? One, two, three. (laughs) What were they shouting? It's good practice um, because I believe we're going to be there for this. For the Lord our God, the Almighty, or the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Doesn't that sound great? Somebody should write a song about that. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The bride. Do you know who that is? That's the church. That's us. And we have made ourselves ready, it says. And you know what is unusual about this wedding? The attention's on the groom. That never happens. The attention is on the groom, as well it should be. Now, obviously, the bride is mentioned here, but the attention is going to be on the groom. A marriage was the single greatest celebration and social event of the biblical world. The wedding of the Lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. There is something for the bride to do. Verse 7, it says, The marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. And I don't think that it means that she's got her makeup on right and she's made sure that she's got the right dress and everything is fitting together and she learns how to uh, do all the things she has to do and how to walk down the aisle, all that sort of thing. I don't think that's the, the reference here that she's making herself ready. I think that it is her righteous acts that make her ready. And if the bride is the church, then we are making ourselves ready even now by the righteous acts that we do. That is our preparation for the wedding. And that's an awesome responsibility. The, The bride prepares herself, but the groom is really the one preparing her because according to Ephesians 5, he's the one who nurtures his bride and takes good care of her. Here's what Dennis Fisher has said. The book, To Marry an English Lord, chronicles the 19th century phenomenon of rich American heiresses who sought marriages to British aristocracy. Although they were already wealthy, they wanted the social status of royalty. The book begins with Prince Albert, son of Queen Victoria, going to the United States to pay a social call. A mass of wealthy heiresses flood into a ball arranged for Prince Albert, each hoping to become his royal bride. Believers in Christ don't have to just hope. They are assured of a royal marriage in heaven. John talks about it right here in verse 7. What is the bride wearing again in verse 8? 
It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Clothed in righteous deeds. What a great picture. Every good work done by every single saint goes to make up the wedding gown of the church. And so the wedding gown is not yet complete. And every one of us gets to contribute to it. Marriage symbolism is beautifully fulfilled in the relationship of Christ to his church. It parallels marriages as they knew it then. There was a first phase, the betrothal contract that they used to do. That was already done for the church, the bride of Christ. That was signed in eternity past when the Father promised the Son a redeemed people, wrote their names in the book of life. The bride price was the blood of the Lord Jesus. Second phase, the bridegroom goes to receive his bride. We understand that from John chapter 14, when the Lord Jesus says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. By this time, that has taken place because we have been taken to church at the rapture. The third phase then follows, that is the wedding feast. It's significant to note that the bride is already the wife of the lamb by that time. The bridegroom has already come for his bride prior to his return that will be described later in this chapter, chapter 19. What is announced here is not the wedding union, but the wedding feast. Third phase of the wedding is about to take place, namely the feast which presumes the earlier rapture of the church. Who's invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb? According to verse 9, who's invited? Well, whoever is invited, we know that they're blessed. It says that. And we know that every wedding has guests. The guests are not the bride. A lot of people think that. They think that the wedding guests or the bride know that the bride is the bride. <laughs> the church is the bride. The guests are probably Old Testament believers. All the heroes of faith in Hebrews 11 will be among the invited guests. The guests may also include the tribulation saints, but there's something unique about the bride of Christ, the church. And the bride of, of Christ, the church, will not be the guests here. Who's the best man? I don't know who the best man is, but remember these words of John the Baptist that are on the screen. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. If there's a best man at this wedding, I'd like to think it's going to be John the Baptist, but I can't prove that. Verse 10 Worship God only. Angel worship is forbidden. The angel is just a fellow servant. Let me close with two practical questions. Two practical questions, as we've seen and heard. A lot of great celebration, a lot of noise that's taking place in heaven. It's worth shouting about. It's worth shouting about to see the conqueror, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, destroying and defeating the forces of evil for all time. The bride of Christ, the church, right there. Some practical questions. Number one, as part of the bride of Christ, are you doing your part to make the bridal gown as beautiful and pure as it can be? Do you realize that you can make a contribution to that wedding gown? Secondly, when we get to heaven, will, we, will worshiping and praising God be a whole new experience for us? Or will we have had a lot of practice? Nothing wrong with getting excited about the Lord Jesus Christ in the here 
and now. People who wouldn't hesitate to scream their heads off at an athletic event don't want to be known to be one of those religious fanatics who gets excited about their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you doing your part to make the bridal gown as beautiful and pure as it can be? When we get to heaven, will worshiping and praising God be a whole new experience, or we will have had a lot of practice? Heavenly Father, thank you for letting us contribute to that wedding gown. Thank you for letting us be the bride. Thank you for letting us have a Savior for all of eternity. And thank you for the worship of you that is in prelude form here. But help us to be able to truly be excited, to be excited about the things that are worth being excited about, namely yourself and your Son, our Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.